get an extra hour of sleep this morning, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, some of you did. Some of you did not. <laughs> but we're glad that you're here all the same. So um, we are starting a new series this morning. We're going to take uh, four weeks to be in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And then we're going to do a little Christmas stuff. And then it's going to be 2014. So just uh, you know what's coming for the rest of the year here. So uh, we're going to be, by the way, in the Old Testament for the next four weeks. If you have your Bible, you might open that up and start looking for Habakkuk. Maybe you've never heard of it. So you might look in the, in the table of contents. And um, while you're doing that, I want to just kind of set the tone for you. Today we're going to do just an introduction, an overview, if you will, to the book. And as I was doing that, it made me think back... Um, this week, in fact, thinking back to when I was in high school, um, I've shared with you before when I was a freshman in high school is when I came to Christ. Um, when I was a senior, I made friends with a guy at a church I was attending. His name was Steve. And, you know, so I was a senior in high school and Steve was a couple years older. He was already in college and, you know, he, he had his own car and he had a girlfriend, you know, and, and uh, Steve and I had a couple things in common. We both were into music. And so we would, we would do some music together, lead some worship together. Um, kind of became really good friends pretty quick. Really looked up to him. He was just uh, a guy spiritually who was where I, where I wanted to go. Um, he was studying to go into the ministry. Uh, just such a blessing. You know, just kind of one of those guys. You look at him. He's, he's young. He's got his whole life in front of him. He's very gifted. You think this guy is going to do incredible, incredible things for God. Uh, at, at our church... We had a evangelistic crusade. So like back in the old days, like I don't know if you, if you had this experience, um, these guys would travel around the country. They were evangelists and they would come to your church and you would meet for seven nights in a row. Uh, and they would, they would just basically yell at you for seven nights in a row and they'd have an altar call and they'd scare you so much. You'd walk up the altar, you know, you'd walk up to the altar seven nights in a row. Uh, anybody have that experience as, when you're younger? Like, yeah, all right. So they're, they're quite an experience. So anyways, we were having this at our church and we were about, I think two, three nights into it. And, uh, after, after church, um, we all, the youth group went out and, and had something to eat and then everybody went home. And that night as Steve was driving home, 21 years old, his whole life in front of him, living for God. Um, he's driving through an intersection and there was an, another guy coming the other way, uh, same age as Steve. This guy's life was going in a complete, in the complete opposite direction, not living for God. He was drunk, uh, ran a red light, hit Steve, killed Steve instantly. And this guy basically walked away from the accident. And uh, I remember over the course of the next couple of weeks when I would be together with Christians at church and we would, you know, we'd all kind of had our church face on and, oh, you know, God is good and we trust God and, you know, we believe God's plan is good. But I'll tell you when I was alone with my thoughts, uh, I, I was having a different conversation with God. I was like, God, you know, where were you? Uh, when uh, Steve was driving through the intersection that night. And how could this, how could this be part of, of your plan? Um, it, what it seemed to me was that it was very unfair. That it was unfair that someone who had been living for God, um, that his life would be taken in a tragic accident and that someone who was just living for themselves, uh, in fact, would be able to just walk away from the accident and seemingly go on with their life. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I mean, we could go, you know, we could give all sorts of examples, I suppose, in life. 
of situations that seem unfair. You were trying to do the right thing and yet things didn't go well, right? And, and we've seen people that, that that's happened to. And, and I don't know if that's something for you that has been a struggle, but it's something that was a struggle for a man who lived about 2,600 years ago and his name was uh, Habakkuk. And uh, in fact, he was a, a prophet of God. And if you have your Bibles, if you never found Habakkuk, so here's how I do it. I just kind of open about halfway through and then I turn to the right. So usually when I, with my Bible and I open, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the major prophets. So in the Bible we have, uh, in the Old Testament, we have our historical books. Uh, we have um, 17 of those. We have the, the Pentateuch and then 12 others. We have five poetic books and then we have another 17 books uh, that are uh, prophetic books. Five are major prophets and 12 are minor prophets. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Um, they're not minor prophets because they were insignificant people. They're minor because um, their books are relatively short. So for instance, I would not be a minor preacher. Um, but if you go to the right a little bit, you'll get into the um, minor prophets, starting with Hosea. And you can look around and, and uh, find Habakkuk, three chapters, pretty short. We're going to be there for um, a month. Um, his name means, it's funny, yeah. I don't mean all at once. Um, so his name means uh, to wrestle, or it might mean to embrace. We're not sure. It means one of those, which is actually very fitting for the book, because this is a man who's going to really wrestle with God as he looks at life. And life seems unfair to him. He's seen some things that do not seem right. He's thinking, you know what, God, if, if I was calling the shots, man, I would have a different plan for what's going on in the world today. And yet he's one who embraced God. Uh, there's a lot of things we don't know about Habakkuk. You know, a lot of the Bible authors we know a lot about, but we don't know um, anything about his family. We don't know his father's name, which is often something we know. We don't know the tribe of Judah that he's from. We don't know his hometown. We don't know any personal you know, details about his life. We do know that he lived about 600 years before Christ. And we know a little bit about the context right before Habakkuk would have become a prophet in Judah. Um, shortly before him, there was a king in Judah named Josiah. If you know your kings in Israel and in Judah a little bit, um, you'll know Israel when the, when the kingdom divided, right? There was Saul and then there was David and his son Solomon and then the kingdom divided, remember? And there was, I always remember there's north, south, Israel, Judah, they had 19, 20 kings. Israel had zero good kings and Judah had eight good kings. And Josiah was one of the good kings. He became king at the age of eight. And during his reign, the law uh, of, of the word of God was, was rediscovered at the temple. They, they had lost track of the law of God and it had been rediscovered and it sparked an interest in Josiah. Uh, there was a revival in his life and repentance. And because of the revival and repentance in his life, so went his family and so went the nation. You know, sometimes when, when we make decisions to do the right thing, you never know how it might impact people around you. For Josiah, it impacted an entire nation. Um, there was conviction, there was repentance, there was revival, there was blessing in the kingdom of Judah for a time, and then Josiah died. And Jehoiakim became king, and he was a godless man. And as the king went, so unfortunately the nation went back into their sinful ways. The nation becomes a mess spiritually, socially, economically, the government politics, which, you know, we wouldn't know anything about, but politics was a mess. The justice system was a mess. And this is what God would do sometimes in the midst of his people when they were living in their sinful ways. He would raise up some, some men. And we call these men prophets. 
And the job of a prophet was, was to call out boldly to the people. And they would speak on God's behalf. Sometimes prophets would receive a word from God that they would deliver to the people. Sometimes prophets, they would just study the scripture and they would see how it applied to the people of their time and, they, and then they would boldly proclaim that. But typically a prophet called out people's sins. And they would call people to repentance. And during this time, there were two prophets that God called. One was a guy named Jeremiah, and the other was his contemporary, who was Habakkuk. These two men called the nation to repentance and called them to faith. We often refer to Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. He was one who wept over Judah's sin. He was not the guy you invited to parties because he was the bummer. He was never any fun, right? God called him to live a life where he didn't get to marry, where he didn't get to party, where he didn't get to have fun. God wants Jeremiah to feel what God is feeling about the sin of the people. A group of people who are fine with their sin, who are going on with life with their sin, living in their sin. But God calls Jeremiah, I want you to live in the midst of this and I want you to reflect my heart in this situation. Situation. And so he did. And, and the strange thing is people thought, what a, what a downer, right? He's, he's the party pooper. We don't invite him to the party. And yet, he was the one guy who got it. And I believe that still even today, God wants to call people. Sometimes there are people around us and we're like, man, that guy's no fun. Because that guy gets it. He understands how God is, is breaking over the sin of our world. And then there was Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk had a different kind of, of ministry. He was more of a, a deep theologian and a philosopher in his book. It's more like a journal of discussions between him and God. And we're going to say that the theme of Habakkuk is faith. Um, now, Pastor Bill and I were talking the other day about themes of books in the Bible. And we kind of decided, isn't the theme to every book of the Bible faith? And I would say, yeah, it probably is. But sometimes there's different shading. So we're going to say this is about having faith when God seems unfair. I'm not saying God is fair, but when he seems unfair, when life seems unfair. And here's Habakkuk, and he's struggling with what he's seen. He's, he's living in a messed up world. He's seen ungodliness. He's seen sin. He's seen things that are unfair. He's seen the wicked prosper, and he's seen the righteous who are suffering. And he basically says to God, where are you? Why aren't you acting? How can you allow this to go on? And God's basic response is going to be, well, Habakkuk, do you, do you trust me? Now, when we talk about trusting God, we're talking about faith. And when we talk about what is faith, and I mean, that kind of strikes at the heart, right, of what it is that we do here as a church. We're talking about faith. What is faith? So here's just, and we talk about faith a lot, but here's what the reformers said faith was. They said faith required three things. Um, that is a saving faith, and the Lord Jesus Christ required three things. First was knowledge. We need to know what is, is true. We live in a world full of opinions. You can get on the internet, right? And you can look up stuff. And the problem with the internet is we're told that, that um, the amount of information on the internet is, is doubling every three years. So we have a lot of information that's available to us. But how do we know what's true? How do we know that? The world is full of a lot of opinions about God. Some people tell you there are many gods. Some people tell you we become gods. Some people tell you there's a lot of ways to God. Some people tell you God's just kind of a grandfatherly guy up in heaven. And, you know, as long as you don't do anything terrible and when you get to heaven, he's going he's gonna to let you in. Some people say there's no God at all. But that stands in contrast to what we read in Scripture. For instance, Jesus said, I am the way and I am, I am the what? 
I'm the truth and I'm the life. Jesus was kind of, you know, kind of specific that way, kind of sectarian that way, kind of divided crowds. And we think of Jesus as the guy who walked in and just gave everyone a great big group hug. But sometimes Jesus would say stuff like this and it would just infuriate people. He was just saying there's truth and there are lies, right? And Jesus is the truth. And the word of God is the truth. In fact, in John 17, he was praying and he said, Father, sanctify them. He's praying about us. Sanctify them. Grow them up in your truth. Thy word is truth. And so there's knowledge that reformers said to have saving faith, we need knowledge of what is true and then we need to accept that. So we don't fight it and we don't rationalize it away and we don't justify why we accept parts of it and why we don't accept other parts of it. We believe that there is one God, his name is Jesus, and the scriptures are true. And then we trust. We trust in Jesus as revealed in Scripture. It's been said that if your faith in Christ does not impact your decisions, then it's not faith. It might just be knowledge. If your faith in Christ doesn't, doesn't uh, impact your budget, doesn't impact your friendships, doesn't impact your marriage, your mouth, your time, then it's probably just knowledge, but it is not trust. See, faith isn't just information about God. Faith is when we, when we trust God. In fact, in James 2.19, James is speaking and he says, you know, you believe that God is one, right? You believe in the Trinity. Well, he says, good for you. That's good that you believe in that doctrine of the Trinity. But you need to know that even the demons believe that and they shudder. And yet that's just information without faith because the demons don't have faith in Jesus as the son of God. But God has called us to something more, not just information, but he's called us to trusting. He's called us to faith. And this brings us to what I'm going to call the, the key verse of the book of Habakkuk. If you want to memorize one verse out of this book, this is the one you want to do. God is speaking to Habakkuk in the middle of the book and he says this. He's speaking about two kinds of people. He says there, there are two kinds of people in the world because Habakkuk is really struggling. He sees a world that seems unfair, that doesn't seem right, and he's wrestling with God. And this is what God says, behold, Speaking of one kind of person, his soul is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his what? By his faith. Now, let me sound familiar to you. You may be thinking, I've never even read Habakkuk. I didn't even hear about this guy, you know, and yet that sounds familiar to me. The righteous will live by faith, right? That's because we're going to find out that it's in the New Testament quite a bit as well. What he's saying is this. There are two kinds of people. There are people who are puffed up. And there are people who trust God. There are people who are puffed up. That is, they are full of themselves. These are people who think they are smarter than they actually are, who are more informed than they actually are. People think they are wiser and more enlightened than they actually are. These are people who might say, there is no God. These are people who might say, there, there are many gods. There are many ways to God. As long as you're sincere, God will be okay. This might be people who believe in material, the philosophy of materialism. They believe that the only thing to life is what you can feel and touch and what you can see. And when life is over, life is over. There's no life after death. But the problem is with puffed up people, they just have faith in themselves. They're, they're guessing that they're right based on their intellect. So they're betting everything on the three pounds of meat between their ears, that they've got it figured out, right? And they're, they're, they're betting their entire life on that. And what he says is, the, the one thing all these people have in common is they're just puffed up. They're just full of themselves. And then there are people that are different. These are people who live by faith. They put their trust in God. 
They believe in Jesus as the son of God. We, we talk and of course 600 years after Habakkuk wrote these words, Jesus came on the scene and kind of filled this out for us. These are people who put their, their faith in Jesus Christ. That Christ came, as scripture said, and he lived a perfect life. That he had come from God. That he was God. People who believe that he worked the miracles that scripture attests. People who understand that he spoke the greatest words ever spoken on the face of this earth. I mean, 2,000 years later, regardless of what people think about Jesus, they're still talking about him. They're still talking about his words. They're still writing books about it. They're still doing podcasts on it. People still gather all over the world to, to think about it, to teach it. Even people who don't believe it still quote him at times. They love some stuff. They don't love other stuff. But it's interesting, just a rabbi who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, and we're still quoting him all the time, endlessly today. It's kind of an amazing thing when you just think about that. He was poor. He was without uh, social clout and political connections, and yet he changed the course of human history. And there's no doubt about that. He was crucified. He rose from the dead. There were many witnesses. Books were written that we call the New Testament. But countless books have been written since then about Jesus Christ. And more books are being written every day. And there are billions of followers. And and on top of all of this stuff, he claimed to be God. He didn't just claim to know God. He didn't just claim to be a way to God. He claimed to be God. And as it's been said, that means he was either the Lord or a liar, or a lunatic. And we're faced with that, with that decision. Habakkuk says there's only two kinds of people. Those who trust in themselves and those who trust in God. So there's Habakkuk writing these these incredible words. And 600 years later, there's a guy named Saul. We know him a little bit later as the apostle Paul. And Saul was a a man who was born into Judaism back during the, the time of Christ. Um, Saul was a guy who believed in, in God, but he was a guy who trusted in himself. So he believed in God, but he, but he trusted in himself. He was, he was puffed up. He, he really believed that he could please God if he tried hard enough. And so he focused on being as moral as he could be and as spiritual as he could be. And he would say that he's pretty sure he was more moral and more spiritual than any other person that he knew during his life. Uh, he was a good person. He was a religious person. Every Jewish ritual was one that he observed. He did all the, he had all the right connections. He knew all the right people. He had the right education. He was devout and he was sure that God would love him and God would accept him based on how hard he was trying and how sincere he was. Paul said if anybody made a good run at it, you know, just in their own effort, he's like, he was the guy. And then one day, in the midst of all his puffed up, I'm living for God, I'm the man, I know it all, he was walking down the road one day, and he had a run-in with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And they had a little meeting. They had a little talk. And Jesus kind of set Paul straight. He kind of, you know, popped his bubble and deflated him a little bit. And it says, Paul went from there, and he spent some time with some disciples, and he spent some time in the Word. And when he was done with this, he was a completely changed man with a completely different view of spirituality and of God. And maybe no two verses tell it better than in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And this is how Paul puts it. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now that's a pretty big turn of events because Paul, not too long before this, was, was 
putting people in prison and having people killed because he believed that the gospel was from the pit of hell. And now he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, to the Jew first, of which he was one, but also to the Greek of which he was not. So he said the gospel is not just for Jews, it's for everyone. For the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written. And then he says these words. They might sound familiar. The righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. In these two verses that to me really summarize up the theology of Paul, he says, no one could say it better than the way Habakkuk said it 600 years ago, so I'm just going to quote him, that the righteous live not by good works, they don't live by religion, they don't live by ritual, they live by faith. And when we trust in Jesus, when we place our faith in him, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness so that we can have a right standing with God. He takes our death and he gives us life. He takes our distance from God and he gives us uh, intimacy. He takes our condemnation and he gives us love. Paul was a man who was changed, who went from being puffed up and trusting in himself to trusting in Jesus Christ. But we live in a puffed up world. We're surrounded by it. I grew up in a very puffed up culture, uh, very different from the Northwest. I grew up in Orange County, California, in an area that was predominantly um, Catholic. So Catholicism was very big where I grew up. I, I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. I'd never gone to the Catholic Church. But most of my neighbors and most of my friends did. And I always found it was kind of interesting from the outside being able to see these are people who very much trusted in their own efforts in terms of religion, they, they had all these rules they, ha- they had to obey. They had to go to, to, to mass, had to go to confession. I'd ask my friends, you know, wait, what are you doing? And, you know, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to confess my sin. And, and it was always kind of the, the joke, not just with those of us who weren't Catholic, but even with my Catholic friends who would say, and I'm just quoting them, they would say, well, you know, here's how we do it. We live like hell six days of the week and then we go and we confess and we get right and we're fit for heaven on the seventh day of the week. And I would always ask, what happens if you die on the third day? And they'd say, I don't know, you know, <laughs> right. Now, now my, my, my self-righteousness was a little different than the Catholics I grew up with because I didn't trust in religion. I trusted in something else. I believed that there was a God, but I just believed that he was pretty much unknowable in this life, that you couldn't really know him, that, that maybe, you know, as long as um, I didn't break any of the big rules, that God and I would be okay. And when every now and then I would talk to him, um, especially when I had a test or, you know, something was coming up and I would, we would talk and I was pretty sure we were okay as long as I didn't break any of the really big rules, like no murder, don't rob any banks, no adultery, no rape, no rooting for USC and no loving cats. And I thought just as long as, you know, those things were okay, then I would be good. And, and then, and so really the way I was puffed up was I, I believed that I had God figured out. God was okay with me and I was okay with him. And one day I would get to heaven and it would all be okay. Okay. And then I started hanging out with some Christians at school when I was a freshman in high school. I told you about that a few weeks ago. And one day they were reading their Bible and they started reading verses like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And I remember when I, when they read those verses to me, I remember just being cut to my heart and thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> uh, so God isn't okay with my sin and we're not just all right with each other. And I began to realize through the work of the Holy Spirit that I was a puffed up person who was full of myself and my own opinion about God. And what I realized was my opinion didn't mean anything. 
My opinion was not going to get me to heaven. What I needed was to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Augustine, one of the great church fathers, said this. The root of all sin, of all sin, is pride. It's being puffed up. So Paul quotes Habakkuk 2, 4 um, in, in the New Testament three and maybe four times if you think that he wrote the book of Hebrews. That's another story. But in Galatians, he says this, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. So he's speaking to people who are like, I'm going to obey all the rules of the law, just like he used to do. And if I obey all the rules, then I'll be good enough to get into heaven, right? And he says, but no one, no one gets right with God by obeying the law because, and now he does it again, right? He's just kind of a one-hit wonder with Paul, right? So he says it again. He's, he quotes Habakkuk. In fact, let's read this together. The righteous will live by, okay, uh, yeah, let's try. Let's try that again, okay? Let's try. Right, here we go. The righteous will live by faith. Again, the righteous will live by by faith. So he quotes Habakkuk again. What he's trying to say is this, right? Are God's laws good? Yes, God's laws are good. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. They're all good. But do we keep God's laws? No, we don't. What he's trying to say is the law is good and you are not. (laughs) The law is perfect and we fall short of the glory of God. The purpose of the law is to show you how sinful you are. Why? So that you feel like a low-life slug, right? No, so that you'll stop trying and that you'll give up and that you'll give in and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. That you'll stop trusting in yourself and trusting in your efforts and that you'll trust Jesus because the righteous live by faith. Now, some of you are in a hard season in life right now. And I know that because We have discussions. You send me email. We chat on Facebook. We talk on the phone. And for some of you, you're you're right where Habakkuk was. Life seems unfair to you, right? For some of you, and there's just so many possibilities, but, you know, maybe for some of you, you just feel like, you know, I had a discussion with somebody recently, and they're in school, and they, you know, their story was, I've been, I've been honest, you know, I've studied hard. I have an average GPA. I have friends who have cheated all the way through school and they're the ones getting the good GPA and they're the ones getting the scholarships and getting into the good schools and it just seems unfair. Or maybe for you, it's uh, maybe, maybe you want to be married, right? Maybe, and I've had people tell me before, like, you know, I've tried to live morally and live ethically and have high um, standards, you know, in my relationships with people and nothing seems to work out. And I got a friend over there and she's got like no morals and does all sorts of terrible stuff and guys are just falling all over themselves, you know, and how come it's so easy for her and it's so hard for me? Or maybe, you know, maybe you're, you're married and, uh, and you were hoping for a different kind of marriage at this point, and it hasn't quite turned out that way. And, and you're, you're, maybe you're thinking, I've prayed, and I've tried, and I've sacrificed, and God, it doesn't seem fair. Right? Or maybe, maybe you want children, and you haven't been able to have children, or maybe you have children, <laughs> and you should have different children, you know. Uh, maybe someone you love is sick. And that just seems real, you know, they're a good, loving person. You've prayed for them. They're sick. They're not getting better. And that seems unfair to you. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your finances. It's a relationship. You need to understand, we look at the world sometimes and we think, this is is unfair. This is not 
This is not right. Maybe you're wrestling with God about that. Here's God's word to you. And this isn't always an easy word for us. But listen to what he says to us in Hebrews chapter 10. So do not throw away your confidence. Is life hard right now? Is life difficult right now? Is life unfair? And in fact, it may very well be unfair. Here's what he says. Don't throw away your confidence, your trust, your faith. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised to you. And as God has made many, many wonderful promises to you. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one. Notice that now he's quoting from Habakkuk again, okay? He says, for uh, my, the, my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, he says, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back. We are not those who are destroyed. We are not those who, when life gets tough and things seem unfair and we just turn around and walk away, we're not those people. That's not what we do. But we are those who believe. We are those who have faith. We are those who walk with God day by day by day and are saved. Sometimes people read this and they find a verse like this very difficult. But one writer put it this way, and I thought he put it well. What he said is this. The way to become righteous... That is, the way to become right with God is by faith. And then once you're right with God, the way to live is by faith, right? So we don't become, we don't become saved because we live righteously. What he says is this, we're saved by the righteousness of God. And then once we are saved, that becomes the model of how we live. That becomes the model and the way that we approach difficult situations in life, that we trust God, that we live by faith because you need new trust in God every day because every new day has its own challenges Life changes. You know, I was thinking this last week about a guy named Job, right? Job is a great example of how fast life can change. Because here's a guy in the Old Testament. He has this amazing life. He's got a wife. He's got kids and they're all married. And it seems like he has a great relationship with his grown kids. He's extremely rich, richer than anyone else on the face of the earth. He's just enjoying his life. And in one day, we're told, in one day, he wakes up that morning completely blessed. And by the end of the day, it says that he's lost all of his wealth. He's lost all of his assets. He's lost all of his, his flocks and his sheep and all that. He's lost all of his children and he's lost his health and he's only left at the end of the day with his wife who's really no help to him if you read the story and three friends who are kind of there well they're again they're really no help at all and he's just scraping boils off of his body right now what does he do when his fortunes change in one day I love what he does I don't have any notes on the screen but let me read it for you this is in Job 21 how does he deal with all this does he shake his fist at God and say God why and God this is not fair no here's what he says naked I came from my mother's womb you've probably heard this before and naked shall I return and then he says this and this is wow this is powerful he says the Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What he says a little later is this. Does it seem right to you that when God blesses me, I will be like, yay, God. Yeah, thank you for the house, God. Thank you for the job. Thank you for the money. Thank you for the stuff. Does it seem fair that when God gives us stuff we like, we're always like, God is good and I trust God. But when God gives us stuff and when stuff happens that does not seem good, suddenly we're like, well, no, I don't like this. And now God, I'm not so sure about you. 
How is it that we, 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 we trust God here and we don't trust God? Is he not the same God? Is he not still good? Is he not still wise? Does he not still have a wonderful plan for us? And Job just says this, in the same way that I accept the blessings, I also accept the stuff I don't understand because it's the same God and I trust him the same. In fact, he says later on to God, God, even if you kill me, I will trust you. See, we want comfort, we want ease, we want blessing. God wants people who trust him. And he is willing at times to take you out of your comfort zone so that you can grow in your faith and in your trust and in your love for him. So we have this guy named Habakkuk and he writes these, these, these amazing words that 600 years later impact the life of a guy named Paul so much that he quotes many times in the New Testament. This, this obscure prophet that some of us have never ever read before. What's interesting is it doesn't even stop there. 1,500 years after the life of Paul is a guy named Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard of him. And, uh, and, and this verse invades the life of this man as well. Now, if you study Martin Luther, you'll know here was a man who was educated from a very young age to be a lawyer. His mom and dad decided our son's going to be a lawyer. And so he was trained, he was educated. And when he got done with his education, he decided that he was actually more interested in spiritual things than he was in the law. And so he went to his parents and he said, I'm not going to become a lawyer. I've got to get some things figured out spiritually. So I'm going to join a monastery. His dad freaked out, as you can imagine. And that he joined a monastery. Because here's what, here's what Luther is dealing with. He's studying the Bible. He's, he's interested in spiritual things. But he, every time he reads the Bible, he keeps understanding God as this righteous judge of humanity. So he's got a lawyer's mind. And he thinks about God as the judge who has a case against humanity. And the case is this, that we're all sinners. And Luther decides it's an airtight case. God can't lose because we're all sinners, right? I mean, that's a fact. That's why we have locks on our doors. That's why we have keys for our cars. That's why we password protect things because we don't trust each other because we know that the person next to us is a sinner. It's just, we don't talk about it a lot, but we know it's true. That's life. We're all sinners. Close, you know, open and shut case. That's the way it is. But, but here's what Luther does about this. He decides he's going to try extra hard to be worthy of God's love and acceptance. So he joins a monastery. He becomes a monk. He takes a vow, a vow of poverty that he will never have any of his own possessions or money. He takes a vow to never have a wife, to, to never have sex. He'll never have kids. Um, he punished himself by sleeping on the floor or on a very uncomfortable bed. He avoided worldly pleasure. He would only eat cold food. Sometimes he would starve himself for weeks at a time. And all of this was to earn God's favor. We're told that some of the monks of that day practiced self-flagellation in which they would beat themselves or they would cut themselves because they felt that in doing so, they were like kind of paying a penalty for their sin. He buried himself in theology because he could not work out scripture. Uh, the, the, the father who oversaw him said, you need to study the Bible more. And after he had studied the Bible so much and he knew it so well, then he began to teach the Bible to other people. He worked long hours. And in spite of all of this, he, he never lost a sense of overwhelming guilt because of his sin and, and rejection by God. 
Now, Luther was involved in Catholicism. So in Catholicism, you would, you would go to a priest and you would confess your sin and you would be involved of your sin. But monks were like, they were super spiritual. So instead of going to confess their sin once a week, they would go every single day. And the way it worked in a monastery was, you'd get up in the morning and, uh, and you would go and you would confess your sin first thing. And then you would go, you know, do your chores. You'd work in the garden, pull weeds or, you know, tend to the vines or whatever you would do. So the story goes this way, that Luther would go each morning. He would go in to confess his sin. And while he was in confessing his sin, he would keep thinking of more things. And so he would confess them. And he would take a long time. And some of the monks thought Luther took a long time because he was lazy and he didn't want to weed in the garden. But in fact, the truth was Luther just got his depravity and his sin more than other people who walled sin, confessed, and left. But then we're told sometimes, and Luther would say, sometimes he would leave. And after he left, after he'd be walking away, he would realize that maybe he didn't feel sorry enough when he was confessing his sin. Or maybe his motive wasn't quite right. And so he would go back, he would turn around and go back, and then he would confess that the way he confessed wasn't quite right. And then he would leave. And then sometimes after he left, he said, he would leave feeling that he was absolved of his sin, that he was now right with God, and he realized that was pride. And so he'd go back and he would confess that, right? And so this is Luther, and because he really felt like there was no way he could ever be acceptable to God. Eventually he's, he's depressed. Some say he's even almost suicidal. And Luther will, wrote years later about how his struggle was mostly from Romans 1.17. This is what was really difficult for Luther. It says this, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now that word gospel literally means good news. And so Luther would have read, for the, the good news of the righteousness of God is revealed uh, from faith for faith. And Luther would read it, and this is the question he always asked. How is God's righteousness good news? All he could think of when he saw that was, God's righteousness just tells me what a low, down, no good, dirty sinner I am. How is that good news? It's terrible. Luther thought it was terrible news. Every time he read about the righteousness of God, it just made him feel like a lowlife. So after years of struggling with this whole concept, one day Luther says, he's, he's reading his Bible and he's reading in Psalm 31. And in Psalm 31, the psalmist just says this line. He says this, he says to God, he prays, deliver me in your righteousness. And when Luther reads that, he thinks to himself, wait a minute, something begins to click. And he's like, wait a minute, he, God could deliver me in his righteousness? And not mine because Luther thought it was all up to him and that made him think of Romans 1 17 so he turned to Romans 1 17 and he read this for in the gospel the righteousness of God so in other words it's starting to click wait a minute it's not my righteousness that makes me right it's God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith as it is written and then he realizes the righteous shall live by faith is Habakkuk 2 4 so he goes to Habakkuk and when he reads Habakkuk this is what he writes I have it in your notes he says there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives as a gift from God it's not earned from God it's a gift from God now you, we say this today right and most of you are like well, was he an idiot? How did he not get that when he was eight? I knew that when I was eight, right? But of course, this is before the Reformation. He's not really getting this. Is, this is not being taught in church. So the light goes on and suddenly Luther realizes, wait a minute, the righteousness that makes me right with God is not my righteousness. It's a righteousness of Jesus that God gives to me when I trust in him. That's why it says, and suddenly it dawned on him, the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, 
That's what it means. And Luther said that he got saved reading Habakkuk 2, 4. This, this, this little obscure prophet, again, that most people never read, that never study. And what he realizes is this, I don't save myself. You don't save yourself. Jesus saves us through his righteousness. We are saved, right? Not because we are good, but because Jesus was perfect. And we don't need to please God because Jesus already did that. We don't need to work our way to God. We just need to trust that Jesus has already done that for us. It's Jesus who saves us and sanctifies us and leads us and delivers us. It's Jesus who, when we place our faith in him, he gives us his grace. And through his grace, he gives us the desire to follow him and obey him. Think about it this way. It's not just that when you place your faith in Jesus, now he saves you and now it's your job to try really hard to be a Christ follower. In fact, what scripture teaches me is once I give my life to Christ, he starts to give me, he gives me the desire to obey him. He gives me the desire to love him. He gives me the desire to live for him. It won't be me. It won't be you. It will be Christ in us and he will get all of the glory for it. This is Luther's breakthrough and it led to a little something you may have heard of called the Reformation. You can look it up online. It's in there, right? So 2,600 years after Habakkuk is written, we sit here today and maybe you're wrestling with God. Maybe there's something in your life that seems unfair and quite frankly, given the world that we live in, it may very well be unfair as we think of fair and, and unfair. But the big question is this. And the question that God gives to us today as we prepare to, to launch into Habakkuk. Will you choose to live by faith? Even when life seems unfair, will you choose to trust God? And that is the question that I think we all wrestle with from time to time. And I think having a trust in God that goes beyond our circumstances is always a great thing for us to think about, to wrestle with. And I would just suggest that maybe this morning would be a great time for you to reaffirm your trust in God with whatever it is that you're wrestling with, with with whatever it is that seems unfair. And in fact, very much may be unfair. And that's a discussion for another day, actually, for next week. But for this week, the question is this. In the meantime, will you trust God. Let's pray together.